think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 126 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 127th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau, and uh, sadly, we do not have with us today Etienne Rainville. Uh, he was unable to make it to today's recording, so we'll have to go on without him. But I'm happy to say we do have two very special guests joining us. Uh, we have Robin Shabin and Keldon Bester from the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. Hello. Uh, delighted to have you guys here. Hi. Thank How's it going? Uh, so monopolies have been in the news in the last couple of years more than they have probably in the last half century. <laughs> I think it's probably fair to say. Um, and, and for listeners benefit, um, I, I, I had some exposure to this when I was working on the Hill, uh, through, through this sort of big tech stuff, uh, and worked with, with Robin a little bit, uh, in that time. So, you know, for full disclosure, uh, but recently you may well have heard about, uh, the proposed Rogers Shaw merger. Uh, so if you are a person who has a phone in this country or goes to grocery stores, uh, so those elite selective clubs, uh, you may be affected by competition policy. So, uh, I thought it would be an interesting time to, to hear from both of you, uh, and to talk a little bit about both the Rogers Shaw situation and just broadly kind of the state of competition policy in Canada. So I guess I'll turn it over to you two to just give some background about what's going on with Rogers and Shaw and kind of where things are at and what the stakes are. Well, you know, to start from the start, what's going on at Rogers Shaw? Rogers, one of the largest telecommunications companies in the country, is going to buy Shaw, which is kind of the fourth player based primarily out of Alberta, but also the owner of Freedom Mobile. And so the past two years, really, have been a series of legal proceedings in front of, you know, or involving the Competition Bureau, involving the CRTC, our telecom regulator, you know, something called the Competition Tribunal, which is a specialized court. And really we're at the final stages where, and we can talk about why, but uh, this this really damaging transaction that, um, and one thing that'll be funny to hit on is people in Ottawa in particular um, should be looking forward to our cell phone rates getting higher. Um, but we're waiting now for Minister Champagne, the industry minister, to really give the final approval on what's called spectrum assets, which is basically the license to broadcast wireless signals, which are, of course, required for offering cell service. And um, so we're waiting for the minister to, you know, it's, it's, it seems quite likely that he'll approve this final piece. However, he's indicated that um, he wants to attach some conditions to that transfer, and, and, and that's been an interesting process um, to date. But, uh, yeah, really, uh, you know, in Canada, we, we, we decided that we don't actually pay enough for wireless. <laughs> and so we'd like to combine a couple more of these companies and, and see how high we can really juice those numbers. I, I think that that's a, a reasonable uh, sum, summation of the situation. <laughs> Robin, anything you want to throw in there? Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in the midst of all of this, we're also seeing the government uh, review the Competition Act, which is the key legislation in place to, in principle, regulate monopolies and prevent concentrations of corporate power like the Roger Shaw deal. But like we've seen with the outcome so far of this whole debacle, <laughs> um, the law's been ineffective at doing what it's supposed to do, which is to protect competition. So I think the next step or, you know, one of the implications of all of this is 
taking a hard look at the Competition Act and thinking about what needs to change so that hopefully when another mega merger like this is contemplated, we actually have some tools to protect ourselves and actually address it. Yeah. So I guess that kind of suggests a couple of questions, which is the first of which is like, what is sort of wrong with the act now that like, I, I think let's take it as read that like, we think that big telecom mergers are not ideal. Like, what are the obstacles in the act that that have the, the tribunal looking at this and saying, no, this is all good. And we can circle back around on, on the bureau, but specifically, like, what are the sort of legislative pieces here? Yeah, I mean, I think one relative relevant to this conversation, of course, but the merger law is, is quite weak. And in particular, you know, the Bureau came out when, when, when the Bureau, who was our competition law enforcer, has an issue with a merger, they have options. You know, often they work out deals. They say, well, you know, gas stations is a great example. They say, well, sell off these gas stations in these small towns so that you can preserve competition or, you know, commit behaviorally to not raising prices for three years. Or you block the thing outright and you say there's no way to try to, um, you know, remedy the situation the harms that we think are going to happen, price increases, quality decreases. So just block the thing. It's simple, it's clean, uh, and it's uh, it, it's really the most effective way to avoid these harms. One issue with our law is that that is like the least likely outcome, and the law is designed in a number of ways to really avoid these clear-cut solutions and instead cook up um, remedies that involve you know, creating new competitors or um, extending other competitors into other areas. And so, you know, Rogers Shaw is a, is a great example because what's what's happening is Rogers negotiates with a company called Videotron in Quebec, uh, and they're going to sell Freedom, their Shaw's wireless brand, to Videotron, and they're going to enter in a bunch of favorable contracts to boost Videotron. And the idea is that oh, we're not actually losing freedom. We're getting this new, uh, better company with Videotron's expansion into Alberta, British Columbia, and Ontario being, you know, supercharged by this. But it, it really does leave the question is to say, you know, why is Rogers... Rogers is not in the business of creating competitors for itself. And if I go to my boss at the telecom company and say, I got a great idea... I'm going to create a huge pain in the ass for us. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's really going to work out. I, I don't think I'm going to get promoted. Um, and so this is this is the situation we find ourselves in, is that the competition tribunal, because of the way it looks at these laws, says, well, on the basis of if we look at Alberta, there was a, there was a wireless company. There wasn't going to be a wireless company because Shaw said they were tired and they wanted to go home. But now there's going to be a new company and they're going to do a great job. And so from the competition tribunal perspective, and, you know, they're deciding based on the laws. So yeah. they're neither here nor there, um, whether they, you know, whether they did a good job or not. But the, the way the law is set up is that we get into these goofy situations where if you tell somebody, if you describe a situation at a logical level, you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. You're like, well, just wait, because we've got all these laws that make it very sensible. Yeah. Um, so again, you have this, you got the tribunal reality where this sounds like a great deal and you've got the, you know, actual reality where there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of this. And I think that's part of the reason that the minister, um, although we can get more into that, is is now saying, uh, I, I need to find some way to hold Videotron accountable. 
um, to doing what they actually say because you know again there's just it's a lot of risk that yeah. just might not work out. So in terms of how the competition tribunal looks at this, and in terms of looking through the prism of the legislation, like. I, I'm a little rusty on my competition act, and I think the standard... That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I think the standard is a substantial lessening of competition, unless, mm-hmm. I, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, so how are they kind of appraising this and saying that this doesn't constitute a substantial lessening of competition? Yeah, so um, there's two aspects to it. The first is that when the tribunal evaluated the deal, they evaluated it with... Uh, this Videotron divestiture in mind, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't look at just Roger's acquisition of Shaw. They also took into account the whole Videotron shell game thing that Keldon explained, right? right. Where, you know, Roger's is going to acquire Shaw, but then it's going to sell Shaw's assets to Videotron. And then Videotron is going to become the new Shaw yeah. with all this these favorable contracts that Rogers is going to give. And fourth round pick and uh, yeah, they're retaining yeah. half a salary. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, sports, yeah. you know, right? <laughs> so um, that's the first thing to keep in mind with all of this. And then secondly, the tribunal found that while the deal will may reduce competition that that – Change isn't material. Sure. So there's... That's a substantial part of it. Yeah. So if there is some lessening, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. So in our law, it's okay if a merger, like, kind of undermines competition. Um, yeah, so long as it's not so bad, right? right? And Keldon's written about this in, um, like, previous work, too. So, like, that's a shortcoming in our law. And I think that, I mean, back to the whole point of the... Or my point before about the review of the Competition Act... I think that's something that is worth contemplating and potentially changing within the legislation. Yeah. And when they're looking at substantial lessening of competition, I guess, like, what are the harms that they are looking out for? Pricing, mostly. I don't know, Calvin, do you have more to add to that? Yeah. I mean, price, I think, is the most common metric, and especially here. But uh, you also bring in qualitative factors like, um, you know, quality of service, um, you know, reason to invest in, like, you know, innovation and research and development those type of things so in theory there are qualitative factors that they they bring in you know for example this this question of you know what whether or not performance under these favorable contracts will be um will be as as effective and and increasingly also um, competition authorities around the world are trying to say you know privacy harms yeah related to the aggregations of uh, of data between companies but you know often it really does um hinge on pricing ultimately and in, in this you know this case not in particular in this case but in general it comes down to these sort of math contests which is right. you know who tells a more convincing story with an ec- economic model to to a judge and then and two lay members and then eventually you know federal judges supreme court judges uh but it but it really does become a a very expensive math contest of, of who tells a story and, and and as robin said you know it really is you know the law really is about making things worse at an acceptable rate. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, it really does leave room for things to just sort of slide um, uh, into, 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 into some sort of monopoly, but just not too fast, um, which I think in particular with, um, with wireless, it's, you know, we, we know it's bad. We know we pay more than almost anybody internationally. So the idea of even a small price increase that, that that's acceptable 
um, is uh, is wild. And 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 Ben Class, um, who's a, who's a telecom expert, um, and and was appeared before the industry committee recently. You know, he had a really good point about this, and, and this was a fault I think in the bureau's case actually. But in Ottawa, you know, Ottawa sickos like us. We actually have access to five wireless carriers. We're basically the only place in this country where we have, we had Shaw, we had Viotron, we have Rogers, Telus, and Bell. And there's a million people in Ottawa that are about to actually truly lose an option with, with freedom being swallowed by Videotron. So, mm-hmm. you know, an example of this is the lens can get so geographically constrained. Um, but, you know, we, we do have a situation where if this goes through, it is highly likely that a million, at, a, at minimum, a million people in the nation's capital will have less competitive wireless pricing. Um, and everybody pats ourselves on the back and say, well, you know, it was a very well-reasoned decision. And we say, great, I love lawyers and I love listening to them tell me about the law. Um, but I think it just is one way to illustrate how this is this is just the situation that these laws put us into. Yeah. So you mentioned the Bureau there and that, that's kind of the, the piece of this that we haven't really touched on in the ecosystem. Because, you know, like as you said, like the Competition Tribunal like sort of assesses the merits of these cases sort of in a, in a, in a judicial way. Um, but who, yeah, like who's bringing the, the cases and sort of like, how does that structure kind of work at a, at a basic level for folks? So, um, for a deal like this, what happens is the parties go to the competition bureau and they file with the bureau and they do that because it meets certain notification thresholds. So they're required to do this. Then this starts a clock at the competition bureau and the bureau has a certain amount of time to review the deal and they phone competitors. They also have certain powers to compel information from the businesses that are merging. So they're taking that internal pricing data and other information. And in this case, they're also um, um, getting basically like special search warrants to um, compel information from the other telcos. Um and using that to build their case. So once they build a case and they get a sense of how this stacks up against the law and whether there's potentially a problem under the law, they have this decision to make. Do we, um, I mean, in this case, there was clearly going to be a problem. And so uh, how do we resolve the problem? Do we go to litigation and fight it? Or do we try and create an agreement with the parties, a consent agreement? And that consent agreement would include typically divesting of some assets, Mm -hmm. right? So in this case, the parties um, proposed this divestiture to Videotron, right, in an effort to bring the deal through. Uh, But the Competition Bureau and the commissioner in particular, um, because that's how the, the cases are structured. It's the commissioner, the head of the competition bureau that takes these cases Mm -hmm. to the competition tribunal. So anyway, the commissioner wasn't buying it. So um, the parties went to litigation. So in that case, the commissioner of the competition bureau is filing for an injunction to block the merger. And then that uh, hearing is heard at the competition tribunal, which is um, like Keldon was saying, it's a kind of like a quasi court yeah. and it's made up of judges, but also lay members. So non-judges. And the idea is that they bring some sort of expertise, business knowledge and insight to the cases. So the tribunal hears the case and then they make a ruling. And then if the parties don't like it, uh, they can appeal to the federal court of appeal. And then if 
that doesn't work, <laughs> there's the potential to appeal to the Supreme Court. Right. So there's like a very sort of clear process for these types of reviews. So in terms of the Bureau, um, and, and I say this because I recall when I when I was working kind of more actively on these issues, uh, the Bureau did a, a little discussion paper or like a little information note about um, about privacy harms and some other stuff, sort of like private, this competition in the age of big data. Oh, yeah. And, and there, this was, you know, really when people were really starting to look at this very critically, and the Bureau's response was kind of like, seems fine, uh, <laughs> which I recall reading through and it's like seems super fine to me uh but it, it was interesting but it, i think that what i've sort of anecdotally kind of like as a casual observer uh seen over the last couple of years is a bit more of an activist environment at the competition bureau than you would have perhaps found you know even five and certainly 10 years ago is that is that about right uh yeah i mean 10 years ago i don't know the dates right but it, there's an interesting question about that but but that's for nerds um uh, <laughs> Definitely, the difference between, you're referring to this 2018 paper, I know the paper well, phenomenal piece of work, uh, and you look about in 2020, I can't remember days anymore, 2022, the Bureau comes out with this response to a senator who's now retired, Senator Weston, he does a very basically non-advertised consultation saying, hey, what do people think about the Competition Act? And the Bureau comes out with this very comprehensive, very detailed why, like whole act spanning response is to say, you know, here are I don't know, 30 problems with this act, including issues with, you know, they use the term, you know, dynamic markets, but really sure. speaking of the big data thing. And so there absolutely has been a shift from this 2018 paper where now, you know, to be fair, again, for nerds, it, it, it asked a fairly narrow question, but it really missed the boat um, almost entirely. You think about in 2018 to to now countries around the world us uk australia europe japan korea um really germany huge um, have all engaged in these massive um, studies and investigations and found a fairly similar range of issues um and, but canada you know we're very special we took a look at it and we said actually it's okay um, <laughs> and and i think in retrospect that that um that was a mistake, and, and again, maybe the question was too narrow. But but I think it. Re I, I think your point is is well taken. Is that the leadership at the time was clearly of the view that steady on, um, but uh, but 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 who's in the position now? I think is um, is you know Boswell much more active, much more willing to actually engage publicly, and I think actually has a better read on the situation. Now, you know, full disclosure, I worked for Boswell, so I'm a little bit biased, although I guess maybe you don't like your bosses, something like that. But then 10 years ago, it's interesting because um, a previous commissioner before the, the one in between, uh, Melanie Aitken, she was actually very aggressive. She brought big, big cases, important cases. They weren't all successful cases, but, you know, MasterCard, Visa, um, even before, and again for nerds, this infamous Amex case in the states. Yeah. So there have been these bursts. Now that was really on the enforcement side. You know, here Boswell Boswell is not particularly aggressive on enforcement. You know, he's here's an example of how low the bar is. You know, he's broken the record on I think merger challenges brought, but that record was like four <laughs> across a five year term. Right. Like it's it's, right. it's, it's not a lot. But where it really is different is on this policy side, where they're saying, they're being open and they're saying, you know, in a very bureaucratic way, of course, we have some serious issues with the act. And, and so that's, I think that's a huge change. Okay. So 
You both of you have, have recently uh, started new gigs uh, with uh, a new organization, uh, which I, I mentioned off the top, Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project. So do you guys want to talk a little bit about sort of what the genesis of that was and how that, that's getting off the ground and kind of what the landscape looks like for the next little bit for you? Mm-hmm. So the goal with camp was to and is to create a organization, an institutional home for Uh, competition policy conversation because in the landscape we had uh, a lot of that conversation was housed in conservative circles that are tied to corporate interests Um, and some people may not like to hear that Um, (laughs) but it's true it's true and um, and so uh, there's a there was a real gap for a progressive um, I want to say like competition, law and policy conversation focused on real people and real people's needs and experiences. And so that's what the goal of camp is all about. It's about um, addressing competition issues through this lens of monopoly power, mm-hmm. right? So stepping outside of the technocratic techno babble that mm-hmm. characterized the policy area for so long and really bringing the issue down to earth and demonstrating how corporate power and monopolies impact people's lives and really highlighting what needs to change in order to make people's lives better. Yeah, you know, I think um, there was a a bit of a weird gap where you had, um, and you know, small C conservative really, but, you know, sort of status quo folks who had some competition law expertise. And I mean, they were competition lawyers. They, they, they make their money on mergers and acquisitions. And then you had, you know, think tanks sort of on the other side of that, but they lack this competition expertise because this is, you know, allegedly this very complicated and, and esoteric topic. But, you know, fundamentally it's about reorienting the relationship of Canadians with, you know, concentrated corporate power, you know, in the States, there's this history of, being anti-monopoly and yeah. throwing off the British. And, you know, meanwhile, like I still have a Hudson's Bay scarf for some reason. Like I don't wear it anymore, but I still have it. Um, and, and so that is just a, you know, one example, but you think about the history of like agricultural movements in Canada, this monopoly and against corporate power language and ethos is not present. And so, you know, in this way, I would argue that we actually have to become a little more American mm-hmm. um, in in thinking about, you know, what really are the costs of this stuff? And, and then people get it. Like everybody knows, and especially now the past two years, people's grocery bills are through the roof. You know, their cell phone bills aren't getting any cheaper and they're not going to get any cheaper. And, you know, the cost of everything has has, has shot through. And, and it's just one more reminder of what everybody knows. Everybody knows what's going on. It's, it's thinking about, okay, well, you know, what are the structures that led to that and, and what are the tools that we have or need to, you know, to actually take control back um, of, of, of our economic lives, really. So, so t- zoom out a little bit into it because you, you brought up the, the sort of U.S. comparison here. And I think it's, um, it's an interesting sort of historical comparison where the U.S., of course, you know, passed the Sherman Antitrust Law in the late 19th century and then very, like, it, it, it sat on the books for a little bit, but it was then very, very assertively enforced in the early 20th century. Here, and my recollection of this, once again, is a little spotty, but we had the sort of House of Commons look into, you know, anti-combines in, 18, in the 1890s, and a very weak law was passed that then didn't really 
was basically not used until it was reformed into the Competition Act, which I think was during the Mulroney government, if I yeah, recall I think that's correctly. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about sort of the historical evolution of, of how this has kind of gone in the last couple of decades and sort of like what do you think explains this like very different kind of, I mean, this is a very broad philosophical question at that point, but sort of like what, what historical factors do you think have, have kind of informed that? Well, something I've been thinking more about lately is that so we have this stream of like competition legislation and you're right we enacted these laws and there wasn't a whole lot of enforcement and when there was it wasn't successful and that had a lot to do with the design of the law Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was this reform in the 1980s but what's interesting is um, you look at different times within parliament And there actually has been a lot of conversation and awareness of monopoly and the impact of monopoly. Um, In particular, I mean, an example that comes to mind for me is newspapers in Mm -hmm. both the 70s and the 80s or 90s. Both Parliament and the Senate did deep dives into the media sector and newspapers in particular and really rang the bell on the issue of monopoly, right? And I think that there has been more sector-specific awareness of the, you know, corporate power and the harms of that. But that hasn't translated into meaningful reforms in competition law. Mm -hmm. So there's this political awareness that in different ways has always been there, but we haven't politically been able to translate that into reforms to competition legislation that could address these monopoly issues across industries. And so this this is why the reforms that we're contemplating to the Competition Act today are so important. It's like a way for us to tie together um, a lot of the issues that we politically have been seeing for decades, if not a century, and actually creating some effective tools to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I think that there's some sector-specific interventions that in some instances could be beneficial, but like the best remedy for corporate power and its stranglehold over our economy is prevention, right? And we need a competition law that does that, that is generally applied across the entire economy. Yeah, you know, you go back to that, the reference about the substantial lessening. Our, our, a lot of our laws centered around this idea of we're only going to intervene once the harm has occurred. But, you know, that's very different than, you know, the models that underlie the like legislation in the states, this word incipiency and you know, it's a good word. You know, great. <laughs> Everybody really knows what it means and doesn't have to look it up. I don't have to look it up after this. <laughs> um, it happens all the time. Everybody uses it. Uh, but this idea that, you know, arresting monopoly before it's able to take root, you know, this is a big part of the discussion with the U.S. lawmakers in, you know, the 20th, and uh, well, really 20th century is this idea of in Canada, you have this kind of idea where you say, well, we're not going to intervene before something's going wrong. Like that's not how the law works. But but on the flip side, is they say, well, why are you going to wait until this is you know clearly damaging businesses, um, our economy, and only then will you even actually maybe think about it, you know doing a multi-year investigation and then taking it to the courts. Which you know even successful cases, if they go all the way or they're appealed, you know these things can take five, six years, even sometimes. Yeah. Um, which is which is which is absurd. And in the meantime, you think about people who 
are operating businesses who are, you know, on the wrong end of a monopoly, they don't yeah. have five years to wait for a case to get resolved. So this idea of incipiency and arresting monopoly before it actually takes root is, you know, simultaneously obvious and totally absent from our law. Yeah, you know, not entirely, but but really in the in the in the foundational element of it. So again, this a, a big thing that I think we would really benefit from is we say we have an economy that is oligopolized in a lot of ways. So why don't we look at take a look at these dominant corporations and, you know, change how we interact with them and, and really reduce the standard and say, you know, if you're big and you are doing something anti-competitive, that needs to stop there. We're not going to um, pull out our calculators and see, you know, whether or not um, output was reduced by this or if, you know, these people benefited, but it was better here. Well, maybe we save some costs over here. Like this is fundamentally just the totally wrong question to be asking. It's like, you know, what what role, if, if dominant corporations are going to exist in our economy, you know, what is our relationship to, to them going to be and, and, and what are we going to require of them? What are we going to yeah. allow them to do? So I, I'll, I'll sort of air the, like, I, I think we, we sort of are all in agreement that, like, there's, there's the dumb guy's critique of this, which is that, like, well, markets work out and, like, you can't really get in the way and if, they've, if there's a monopoly, then it's probably good. And I think we can kind of dispense with that. Uh, I, I think in Canada, there's, if you look at, well, telecoms is a great example. Uh, if you look at airlines, it's kind of the same thing, is that there is a perceived need to protect the domestic market from foreign competition, especially kind of for, you know, geopolitical reasons. Uh, and I, I guess, what do you make of that? And how does that fit into into this for you? Like, do you mean, um, like, we we tolerate less competition because we want to protect ourselves exactly. from and like is that like a a regulatory thing or is it like we permit these monopolies so that they can like look tough yeah in, in my mind it's it's very much explicitly a political choice right it's like right. we we accept that we have the airlines we have and the telecoms we have because you know we wouldn't want american airlines and telecoms uh doing this and right. like what do you kind of make of that reasoning and, and how does that fit into this well, I think there's two ways to slice it, right? Like there's the critique I hear a lot of, oh, we have these like no foreign ownership rules and this, you know, it prevents competition in the market because we could have international players, you know, offering flights or offering cell phone plans and like, look how competitive it would be. And I, I feel a bit skeptical of that argument. Um, I mean, just because if we were to open up these markets and I mean, I, there's two levels of skepticism. First, I don't know how like tight these rules really are, but then even if we were to just like let it all loose and let these unencumbered, um, international firms enter, like competing in a oligopolistic market that is coordinated like it, it's a tough go right yeah. like that's the whole problem right like we have these uncompetitive markets that um i mean it's difficult even for well-funded players to enter so i think there's that angle of the the issue and then i think there's another way of understanding it which is this logic that we have in the act and it's based on this 1980s neoliberal thinking that, whoa, well, we need to let our businesses get really big yeah. so that they can better compete internationally, right? And 
that theme shows up in the Competition Act and in other places too. And I think uh, over time, that idea has become debunked, right? Like output is not... The, your ability to produce a huge volume of widgets yeah. does not like constitute your international success, right? Like yeah. we're not in this... Like, Certainly not widget- in kind of the post-industrial... Yeah, exactly. Now. Yeah, exactly. And so competing on things like quality and innovation are what's most important and having competitive markets that aren't dominated by big players is key to creating those conditions. So um, there's definitely an element of like global competition and Canada's place in that. And I th- we need to be modernizing our thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. This is, I'm glad you touched on, on sort of the other side of that coin because I had in mind sort of that, that defensive kind of like we need to preserve these, these companies from competition. And, you know, like there are arguments about like, you know, Air Canada has to operate the rural routes and stuff that don't make a lot of money. And uh, I guess you could probably say the same thing with telecoms have to build out, you know, rural and remote telecom when they remember to do it. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're right. How that come they keep forgetting to do that? It's crazy. Uh, you know, I forget things all the time. I can't really get on their case. Uh, but there's also there's also kind of that like offensive one where it's like we need to like bulk up our domestic companies so that they can then go out and, and compete. So I'm glad, glad you addressed that because that, that was the next uh, thing I was going to ask. Mm. So in the last budget, I believe, uh, there was a commitment to start looking at changes to the Competition Act. And Robin, correct me if I'm wrong, they did make one change or are like going to make it soon, which is actually what we talked about a couple of years ago. Yeah. About undoing a change that was made in the uh, 2009 BIA mm-hmm. about, uh, well, actually, I'm going to let you explain it because my memory is <laughs> just a little too foggy to get through the precise nuances of this. So I'll let you take it away on that particular one. We can circle back to the broader review after that. Yeah, it it's changes to uh, the section of the Competition Act that deal with criminal collusion. Um, So under the Canadian law, prior to these changes, it was illegal for you to conspire with a competitor to um, fix the price of the good you sell. But it was not illegal to conspire to fix the price of a good that you purchase. So there's two sides, right, of a business, like there's the input side and the output side. So if you're, yeah, if you're colluding on the output side, that's illegal. If you're colluding on the input side, you're A-OK. And so the implication of that is wage fixing, right? So it was not criminal for employers to collude to fix wages, which is a huge oversight. So the government has... Uh, made a change to that certain provision that now makes it a criminal offense. Yeah. Um, now, whether there's some debate as to whether that is going to be effective, there are a lot of challenges in um, just criminal law applied to corporations and business in general. Um, and the design of these sorts of provisions has important implications for how effective they are. So again, the effectiveness is to be determined, but it's, um, I find it, I feel optimistic that we're finally acknowledging these issues because I, the rhetoric within competition policy circles about issues like wage fixing or even just like worker welfare in general is very, um, 
uh, antagonistic and anti-worker. There's a huge anti-worker sentiment within the competition policy community. And that's gone a long way into, um, you know, pushing labor and other important voices out of the policy conversation. So not only does this change suggest, I mean, something positive within the act, but it also signals a shift in how we um, engage in policy making within competition policy sphere and who gets included in the tent. Did you want to jump in on that, Kelvin? Or you, you look like you had a... If not, we can pivot to... You no, know, I'm just thinking about the tent. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I think, you know, the, there was a series of amendments in the 2022 budget, and I think that that was important. And it's important to recognize that the government, you know, came through on, you know, a, a number of changes that are that are not transformative, but but that are our first step. And, and then the second piece, and, and we can talk more about that, is, you know, what's going on right now is this broader consultation on the Competition Act, which, you know, the government has said... You know, we're opening the whole thing up, you know, in some respect, at least for Canadians to, to, to comment on. And, and that, I think, really is, is you know, the first step to to getting at some of the changes, you know, ideally. And, and if we're able to, you know, muster the right kind of uh, uh, political effort um, to get to, to get something closer to what we'd actually want as opposed to what we have today. Sure. So I'll just sort of zoom out on that for a second and, and note that we're kind of at an odd moment uh, geopolitically where... You know, a couple of years ago, you would have asked people, free markets, good or bad? And everyone would have said, definitely yes. Now, sort of post-pandemic and post, you know, invasion of Ukraine and sort of China becoming more of a, of a thing people are concerned about, you have a lot more rhetoric about, you know, French shoring and this kind of thing and, and about, um, you know, in general, how government can can sort of interface with markets more closely, let's say. Uh, and I, from the competition point of view, I worry that there is, as you sort of talking about earlier, Robin, like, I think there's a bit of reflexive, uh, deference to the idea that you need the, the beefiest guys possible kind of in your corner. And that like, if you're looking, for instance, like looking at sort of the, the industry minister's mandate right now is very heavily focused on EVs. And like, I have a sense just looking at how they've, they've been doling out, you know, SIF and, and other programs in the last year that like the priority is on on getting the, the biggest guys possible uh, and getting them to sort of put the, the money down for it. So I guess like, how do you see that as sort of interacting with this kind of political moment where there is, you know, a lot of grassroots momentum in a way that hasn't been true in, in you know, generations about competition policy? And do you worry that that's going to get kind of squashed amid that, that kind of geopolitical moment? You know, I think for Canada, at least, we have been in that political moment, as you described, for, for so long. Mm -hmm. We've always been this branch plan economy, you know, since World War II. And so, you know, the two ideas can coexist. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a deconcentration agenda. You, you can have large corporations, but, you know, you are changing, you know, what the boundaries on their conduct are. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a, the energy in the States, you think about the State of the Union address this past week, Biden, you know, he uh, talked about Ticketmaster, right? Like he talked about credit Just card Just like Pearl fees. Jam in the 90s. So catch yeah. up to Pearl Jam. It's yeah. good to see. Pearl Jam, they were ahead of their time. And, we do have and to continue give, to be. I will yeah. Say. Eddie Vedder deserves all the credit for the anti-monopoly movement. But, you know, Canadians will benefit from that energy, right? Yeah. So... As the U.S. changes the relationship, their relationship with concentrated power, the window opens up for us to, um, 
you know, follow along, you know, like anything else, it's, it's tougher for us to take a truly divergent path, sure. but we can still craft our own while taking advantage of this energy. And so, you know, of course you think about like who talks to the industry minister the most, it's, it's the automotive companies and, and yeah. that's not surprising. And, and, you know, will that change? Will that relationship change? You know, no, certainly not in the short term, but I think it's about, you know, what do we ask of and what do we expect of, you know, these companies, um, however large they are, you know, what, what, what do we, what do we demand and, and what do we expect to be treated? And, and do we have an economy where they're allowed to just run rampant or do we set the rules of fair competition and, and allow, you know, innovation and, and other companies to thrive in that? And, and yeah. I think the, the opportunity, you know, irrespective of the geopolitical moment, but, but also uh, as a part of it, you know, the opportunity is now to do that. Yeah. So, so I guess that takes us very neatly to what are you looking for in, in sort of like what I, and uh, you know, I don't want you to scoop your own uh, submission if you haven't done it yet, but just to, perhaps in broad terms, um, like what's, what, what kind of changes do you want to see? Yeah, I think there's three big areas, you know, what, what's on the license plate. No, that's not the right metaphor. You know, what's on the menu first and foremost, we need to stop things from getting worse. And a big part of that is, really ratcheting up uh, merger control, you know, particularly for dominant firms. If, if, if you're a dominant firm, I think it should be functionally impossible for you to acquire a competitor. Um, I, I think that that, you know, kind of thinking is, is a much uh, clearer logic than this, you know, balancing weights and, you know, substantial or not so substantial. You know, dominant firms, they're, they're already dominant. However, they got there, you know, neither here nor there. But we need to remove this slow slide into further monopoly that we still engage in. Um, second is that we need to reckon with the monopolies that are already there. And, and you know, we have law, uh, a provision of our law called abusive dominance. Right now, it's, it's very unevenly applied. We haven't had a case in about six years. Um, so a big part of that is... Uh, similar to the merger piece is stepping back and saying, let's let's focus on monopoly at its incipiency. Let's focus on conduct that harms competition, whether it has substantial outcomes or not, or substantial effects or not. We say that these dominant firms should not be allowed to engage in this kind of conduct that may or may not uh, make it harder for new firms to, to enter and expand. Mm -hmm. And then I think that the third bucket is, you know, looking at the way we administer these laws and both deepening, which is investing in the competition bureau, giving it powers to proactively learn about markets and to, you know, inform parliament of what's going on. You know, I think parliamentarians are, are hungry for this stuff. They, they want to know more about the economy and they want to act on it. And the bureau could be a real vehicle for that. But then second, I think there's sort of a decentralizing to be done, which is you know, what are the roles of the provinces? You know, what are the roles of the, you know, we call it the private bar. But in Canada, it's um, companies can't really, you know, bring an abuse of dominance case. They, they, they just recently got the ability to bring it. But it's unclear if anybody's actually going to make use of that. Whereas in the States, you have very important groundbreaking cases, which are companies bringing it against the companies that are that are harming them. So I think the third pillar is really deepening the, you know, state resources but also decentralizing it, understanding that, you know, the Bureau is 400 people in Ottawa and a couple other regional offices. We've got a $2 trillion economy. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to know everything that's going on and all the new things that are emerging. And, and I think this is a situation where we need more eyes on the ground. So I think at a high level, those are the three big buckets that we're looking for is, you know, arrest concentration, 
rein in monopoly power and you know invest in the you know mechanisms and the authorities to to enforce these laws anything you want to throw in robin no all good okay very good uh well i guess i'll, I'll just kind of leave it with with one kind of big question uh or perhaps you know one you may want to answer like in one sentence and then kind of at length which is like what do you think is like if you had to if you had to put one harm on it like what is the thing that is bad about monopolies one thing Damn. Just, just one <laughs> in the spirit of monopolies <laughs> you can only pick one Robin has to go first. Okay. I've got one. If I, if I, I can just share mine if I get the juices flowing. Yeah, yeah, sure. share yours. So I, I'm not an economist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, number, numbers, very frightened of them. So I, I try, okay. tend not to look at them as much okay. as I can. Uh, so I'm a political economy guy, really, at heart. And I think, like, and I did a lot of uh, Samuel Harrington in grad school. So uh, I, I kind of come from a school of thought where... The, the important thing in a democratic society is that no one gets to be a feudal lord by virtue of their control of real resources. Okay, I just want to interrupt and say this is not one word. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't... I, the, the rules do not apply to the podcast. Okay, host. all right. I get, to, yeah. I get to do my own. Uh, but that, that to me is like that sort of like non-domination thing is, is really like pivotally important because i just don't think you get to keep a democracy for very long if you have companies and and sectors that are that are too powerful so yours is non-domination yes okay uh it's hokey i'm trying to think of a better synonym but i would say freedom um and what i have in mind is like like that feeling when you go to the grocery store and you put your stuff in the cart and then you take your cart to the till and you put the stuff in your cart on the conveyor belt and they're checking it through and you it's that absence of stress right of like okay i can afford this you know i have economic power and the freedom to acquire the physical things i need in order to thrive i have the ability to access different spaces because I can't afford to go places. I can afford access to the community center, right? Because I have that economic well-being and I'm not being squeezed by people who are more powerful than me, right? And in my mind, it, it ties in a lot with these ideas of poverty, right? Like when we talk about definitions of poverty, like that's what we're talking about poverty the concept of poverty is it's supposed to be this monetary threshold at which you are not socially excluded Mm -hmm. right like poverty is a form of social exclusion that's driven by economic factors well that's as old as adam smith right like he very much talks about people's fancy coats and it's like well that's that's because they're relatively positional goods and people have like yeah that's that's a good way to think about it yeah and so being able having the freedom to Um, be fulfilled on a basic level as a human. That's why anti-monopoly is important. No, Rob, Rob is absolutely right, and, and I, I'm, I'm I'm stealing it. It really, it really does come down to freedom. Freedom, not only, and and all I would add to it is is freedom in all aspects of life. You know, freedom yeah. to, as Robin said, you know, live without the stress and desperation that I think a lot of people have had to go through the past two years, but. And the freedom to, you know, live your life as you see fit and to 
um, you know, start a business or to strike out on your own. And, and, and all of this is, is, is crushed and can be collapsed by monopoly. And, and that really um, narrows you, you know, back to, to your non-domination point. We're all talking about the same thing. Um, it, it is that, you know, your um, role as a citizen in society is, is, is squeezed and you really lose vitality. And I, and I think it, it, it can really, it can really drain uh, a society of, of its energy. So, you know, all, all this to say is that Robin is entirely right. And, and I don't have another word for it. Um, but, but it really does come down to freedom. Beautiful. Well, with, uh, we'll let Noel Gibson, uh, and <laughs> play us out on that one. Uh, but thank you both really so much. This was great. I'm glad we finally got around having this conversation. Uh, and yeah, like keep us posted on, on how things are going, uh, with, with the consultation and sort of what things look like kind of in a year. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and so the consultation, it's, uh, the deadline got bumped. So it now closes March 31st, 2023. So, um, and I think it's important for people to, um, submit something right even as individuals even if like you're part of an organization and you think mm, like i don't know anything about this right i think just sharing any material just to indicate that there is a uh, civil society that's engaged on this issue and that um people's voices do matter it's important to participate so if you have time dear listener um please go online and fill out the form. And I will put the link in the description. Yeah, put there the link go. in there. Fill out the form. Yeah, fill out the form. For freedom. Woo! All right. Well, thank you both. Really a pleasure. And uh, until next time. Thanks so much. Thank you.